listening to the Writers Forum. I'm your host, Mike Tusa, and today I'm privileged to be speaking with Tara Stringfellow about her latest novel titled Memphis. Ms. Stringfellow is a poet. She has a collection out of poetry out titled More Than Dancing. She's also an attorney, which we won't hold against her, and a graduate of Northwestern University's MFA program, where she was a semifinalist for the Fulbright Fellowship. Her writings have appeared in numerous publications, including Women's Arts Quarterly Journal, Apogee Journal, and Minerva Rising. In addition, while she now lives in Memphis, which seems appropriate, she also lives, has lived, I should say, in Okinawa, in Ghana, in Cuba, Spain, and elsewhere. Welcome to the show, Tara. Oh, thank you all so much for having me. I appreciate it. Such an honor. Well, let me ask you this. How do you think your exposure to these different cultures where you lived affected or inspired you as a writer? Oh, well, it inspires me as a human being, you know, <laughs> to travel. to li- And I don't just travel. I live in the place. I, you know, aprendi espanol um, con conversaciones en la calle. You know, I learned how to speak Spanish on the street with people. Um, parlo italiano, striato uh, italiano, e ho vissuto in Italia due estate fa. I speak Italian. I uh, lived in Italy two summers ago. I'm going to live in Italy this summer. Uh, ah. Write the second novel. So, it, it, I mean, living in a different place, being forced to learn a language. Um, I stay in little towns where no one speaks any English. Um, it helps me become a better person. I say, wow, I can, as a woman live on a mountain in southern Spain, drive a little stick car, you know, and, and, and create a life for myself. It makes me feel so powerful, not just as a writer, but as a human being, that I, I as a black American, in, it, in these places um, that are ancient. Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting you say that. I remember my old Italian professor telling us, if you learn a second language, and you obviously know more than two, uh, you get to have a second personality. Did you find that to be true as you learned different languages? No, I'm still the same person. No, okay. I, I went, but you know, it is it is rather. I've I've been told that you're you learn a language in two different ways. Mm-hmm. The first way is in the crib. So your mother tongue, and the second way is in bed with your lover. <laughs> if you can argue with your lover in a different language, then you've know you know you've got it. And I can say that I have argued with some men in Cuba <laughs> and in Italy. Good, Listen, good for I will you. Be arguing some more, I'm certain this summer in uh, Italy. So that is the way to uh, to learn a different language. But well, it's good no, to I'm be. I'm still the same. I'm still the same car okay. wherever I go. It's good they to be. It's good to be optimistic about your summer. All right, well, let me ask you this. I normally ask writers, you know, because many of our listeners will say they're curious about it. You know, when do you write and where do you write? Do you have a favorite place? You actually list some of this in your, uh, towards the end of your book, uh, and I guess kind of in an appendix, that you've written in various restaurants around the world. Is that right? Yeah. Like I would, well, usually I rent a home, you know, wherever I am, right on the beach, and I have a full kitchen. But sometimes I like to, um, I always edit at night, cocktail hour, what I've written that morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, I write freehand in the mornings, and then I transfer it to the computer when I think it's ready at night. So I'll go to these restaurants um, and sit and, you know, have a meal with my, you know, my moleskin and my laptop, and they they don't mind me talking to myself, you know, like... <laughs> And being this crazy, you know, skinny 
little black person <laughs> in a restaurant like in Cuba and they just they're just very excited um, that a writer is even there sure. and um, so I wanted to thank the restaurants that have always treated me well um, especially during the pandemic you know I feel as if restaurants um, kept us going yeah kept yeah. us alive in many ways so I really wanted to thank them for all the Oh, the hospitality. I got you. Me. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about writing and, and what effects or, or influences you may have. You practice mm-hmm. law. Did you have any yes. trouble transitioning from the professional writing style, which one does as an attorney, to fiction writing? No, I can write anything. Okay. The, yeah. You're, you're also, as, as you know, you're an attorney. Um, you can as, if you have gone to law school, not even if you're, um, you know, practice, if you practice, if you've gone to law school, you can write. Uh, I don't know about your law school. Mine made damn sure. Oh, yeah. No, we did. Before I left. Yeah, we did this. I could write uh, an appellate brief for the Supreme Court before I left out of there. So yeah. if, if I was given a writing assignment right after this call, like you have to, you know, write something legally, I could. Um, if I was given a directive to write an Elizabethan sonnet in perfect iambic pentameter, it'd take me about 15 minutes. So, yeah, you know, um, writing professionally is very helpful. Okay. Um, for my publishing contracts, I can read them. Sometimes even my agent, she'll have to go back to the contract to look up some verbiage, and I know it. Right. I'm like, it's on page this of the contract, and then I just start speaking. <laughs> ah, good for you. And she says, how do you do that? I said, I don't they, they train us to do that in school. Yeah, they did. So, All right. So um, let, me, let me shift gears a little bit again. Again, back to writing stuff. You're also a poet. Now, now for yeah. me, you know, the muse of poetry is not always the same as fiction writing. In fact, I had a poet in here one time, and he said, uh, I, he, and he also wrote fiction, and I asked him about the difference, and he said, well, poetry is acute pain. Meaning, you know, you've got to get it out. Now, good poetry pierces the veneer of, you know, everyday living. At least it does to me and calls us to deeper reflection. Your book, Memphis, does that. How do you think your writing as a poet influences or affects your writing when you're writing fiction? Everything. Always. I was born a poet. Poetry is my first calling. This fiction thing is just a hobby. Honestly. Okay. It is. Like, it's, it's fun. I find it fun and entertaining and new and different. But other than that, it is a side gig. Okay. Fiction is my side piece. Okay. Okay. Poetry is always going to be, um, it, well, it's a harder art. It's a higher calling. It's, um, it, it, it's harder for me to write a single good poem than it is for me to write a single good chapter. Okay. Um, All right. Well, let's. It's just. um, It's just something that I will. Poetry is something I will never master. You know, like I. I can be on my deathbed trying to write a perfect haiku, and it won't. It won't be perfect. (laughs) Okay. All right. Well, let's talk specifically about the book Memphis, the one-time home of one of my favorite uh, historical figures, Ida B. Wells Barnett. And now I understand your home. Can you tell me why you chose to set this story in Memphis? and what it represents to you. Well, I'm from Memphis, so I've, I've lived in all these other places, but my ancestral home is Memphis. You know, mm-hmm. my mama was born and raised here. I was, I found out I was conceived here. My mama was walking around pregnant with me in Midtown. So okay. I'm, I'm, I'm Memphis blood, and, and, and it's in my marrow. I knew the title of this book before I knew anything else. 
Okay. I did. I knew I wanted to call it Memphis. I knew I wanted to write a long, epic love letter to my city, to the black women living in my city, uh, to the black women who've always made this country great. You know, I'm, I'm sitting in my writing room in Memphis right now, and I went out last night and just saw the river. And I said, wow, I live in the most beautiful place on earth. It is a beautiful black ancient city, just like Memphis, Egypt Mm -hmm. sits on the Nile. We sit on the Mississippi. It is a powerful city. It's it's a it's a great feeling knowing I'm I'm a Delta rider, just like Twain or Faulkner or Welty. You know, it's 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 uh you know, I've known some rivers and my soul has grown deep with the rivers. Well, in the oh, I book, love my city. in the book, you go back several generations, and your family goes back several generations. And I, I read some of your poetry, and and one poem, for example, entitled "Ex-Husband," you mentioned mm-hmm. that your grandfather uh, was lynched there. Correct? Yes, we do believe um, that my grandfather, you know, doing so much research, looking at all the newspaper articles, and just hearing my mother grow up um, and tell stories, we very much believe that he was. Um, killed. He was assassinated, and his body was pulled out of the Mississippi River, bruised and broken, purple as lemon, uh, purple as a melon, on um, May 30th, 1960, the same day George Floyd died. Okay, I got you. Well, all right, in the book, in Memphis, you have a 10-year-old Joan and her mother fleeing uh, from an abusive father, and yes. they're fleeing to a home that Joan's grandfather built. Mm-hmm. So, so what struck me, and I'm curious if this was your intention, is they're in essence fleeing the present to go seek solace and protection from the past, right? I always do that. Whenever I'm real stressed, you know, my best friend Michael, I'll be ranting and raving. He just stops me. He says, when's the last time you've been home to Memphis? <laughs> you know, uh, home grounds me. It settles me. It calms me down. Um, there's something about being in your home, whatever home that is, but especially the South. There is something, you know, as you well know, you're down in NOLA. There is something magical and ghostly about the South. You know, ghosts still roam here. And there's that special duende that is just that je ne sais quoi in the air here that I tried to get down on the page of Memphis. I don't know if I've accomplished that or not, but the South is, there is, you know you're in the South in any other place in America, don't you? If, if you were just dropped somewhere, you'd see a willow. And you'd be like, oh, okay, I'm in this. Well, I, I think you do accomplish it because I think Memphis in a part, is, is in part a character in the book, which is really a great thing to do. All right. Oh, I can, can I get you to read um, a brief excerpt from the book? Yes. I would be happy to read the dedication. I dedicated the book to Miss um, Gianna Floyd, George Floyd's daughter, because as I was writing it, you know, he had passed away. So mm-hmm. here it goes to Miss Gianna Floyd. I wrote you a black fairy tale. And I understand if you're not ready to read it yet, or if your mama told you to wait a bit, that's just fine. This book ain't going nowhere. This book going to be right here whenever you want it. Whenever you get finished playing outside in that bright, beautiful world your daddy loved so much. Child, it's just right to set this aside. Lord knows 
not a soul on this earth gonna blame you for being out in it, running, laughing, breathing. Did you, I, I, I hear you getting emotional on that, when you were writing the story of Memphis and dealing with some of the issues which we're going to touch on, did you find yourself getting emotional when you were writing it as well? Oh, of course. There'd be huge chapters. I was sobbing the entire mm-hmm. time. Chapter 32, which is my favorite chapter, the second and last chapter of the book, I wrote that in the morning, crying my eyes out, did you? just sobbing hysterically. But also I'd write it and laugh. There, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. like yeah. I'd stand back after I wrote a paragraph, especially with Auntie August or Della or Maya, and I, I'd be cracking up. I said, Well, where did <laughs> who are these people? Like, stop, you have to be on the page. Like, stop being so, <laughs> so crazy, Maya, calm down. And I'd be talking to them, and so it was joy writing the book, it really was, it was mm-hmm. cathartic, and I felt in touch and tune with my ancestors. I'm sitting here now at my writing desk talking to you. I have photos of my grandparents all around me. You know, it's uh, it's it's a lovely uh, feeling to be able to connect with my grandparents because unfortunately all of mine have passed away. Mm-hmm. So this was um, in many ways a monument gotcha. to them, Memphis. All right, well, I couldn't help noticing something that in several of the chapters that related to Joan, you start off with inclement weather. When one, there's a hmm. storm, there's a tornado, there's thunder. In hmm. fact, if, if that's something, if I'm catching you off guard on that, for example, in, uh, in the chapter of Joan in 2003, it starts off with the storm cleared up. Yeah. And then in 1995, you said, quote, I awoke to the sound of a tornado, close quote. Yeah. And then in 2001, Joan says, quote, the summer heat, a slow moving tornado had finally mm-hmm. left the area, close quote. And then in chapter 23, quote, thunder sounded again, close quote. Were you aware, and were you doing that on purpose? Yes, because um, we have storms, and <laughs> we get tornadoes. Like, we have a tornado season. I don't know if y'all get them so much down in Noah. Y'all get the hurricanes. But we get thunderstorms, really bad thunderstorms. Um, the power goes out, you know, the whole home shakes. So I really wanted... Memphis weather to be a part of the book itself. How can you talk about a city and not talk about its seasons? And you can't really talk about Memphis without talking about our storms. We have horrible ice storms. Um, You got to be a trooper to live here. (laughs) You can't be no no weak person and live in Memphis in this bluff city. So I wanted to get how violent Memphis can be sometimes. How... um, how the sky will just change, the temperature drop, and you got to go inside real quick. But I love that. Like, there's something about a tornado. I've never seen one myself. I think I'm, I'm terrified and fascinated. I have like recurring nightmares that I'm driving along in Memphis, and there's just a tornado, and I'm in the car. I have no, I have nowhere to go. <laughs> well, you know, I don't what, know. what what struck my me. My obsession with Wizard of Oz and going yeah, in a tornado be. Left away and yeah. going to a different place in a tornado. There's something about a powerful southern storm, and you only get it in certain parts of the country. So, well, what struck me was not only that it was you were saying something about Memphis, but it, it made me start to wonder about Joan and the character of Joan as you create this character that keeps popping up with the storms. Anyway, the story you write takes place over some seventy years or so. 
Um, did you have to do a lot of research on the city of Memphis? I know you, you grew up. Oh, yes. But did you have to do that in order to write the story? Yes. Oh, yes. I researched. I researched as much as I would write. There'd be days where I would just do research and not write. I was I like, you. okay, I need okay. a week of research. And as attorneys, it was very, it was fairly easy for me to do. I could pull, you know, death records, autopsy reports. I can read criminal and court cases. I can, you know, read deeds and pull titles, right. clear it. Right. Um, you know, census data I can read through. Um, it's it's fairly easy when you're an attorney. Like you have to deal with these um, documents for evidence for a case anyway. So it was. Right. I just put on my attorney hat and did some research. Um, law school will teach you how to research too. As you, yeah, it does. Do as that. you well know. Yeah. So um, I got on Ancestry and LexisNexis and. <laughs> well, let me and ask Jay you this. Shore and I called it and I and I deep I I dove in deep. To yeah. the research, yeah. and it was as gratifying finding out some of these things. Um, I found out my grandfather served in World War II. Had no mm-hmm. idea. I got to call my mother and tell her that her father was a war a, a war hero. Okay. Now, in the book, you have a town called Douglas. Okay, and I couldn't help noticing that Douglas is spelled with two S's, which is how Fred- Douglas is a real. It's not a town. It's a neighborhood in North Memphis. It's real. Okay. I grew up. I, when I when I first moved to Memphis, I moved into my ancestral home in Douglas, just like Joan did. And Douglas in in, in um, Tennessee is spelled with two S's. Yeah, it's a neighbor. It's not. It's just like a hood of Memphis. It's I a black okay. All right. um, neighborhood. Uh, Orange Mound is a, another black neighborhood. I mean, we have great hoods. There's, uh, I mean, there's New Chicago. There's Frazier. There's Raleigh. We have all of these. Okay you know, hoods in Memphis, and they have different names, but they're just different parts of the city of Memphis. I got you. So Douglas is an, uh, a beautiful black neighborhood, historically black, here in Memphis. It's I'm sitting only a few minutes away from it. It's a All beautiful right. place. Part of the story uh, that you wrote has to do, I think, with the trauma that can be passed down from generation to generation, but also how those prior generations set the stage for an eventual breakout, correct? Or, or am I reading too much into that? Oh, sure. Yes. Okay. Um, it's such a big issue, you know, how to change the pattern of trauma that's come down from generations. How does Joan do that in the book? I don't like to think of it as trauma okay. so much as, you know, white folk weren't good to my family. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, they, they themselves were fine. It's, it's, it's the society in which they found themselves. Right? And so Joan is still a black, a dark-skinned black woman. So I don't want to give too much away, but when she goes off and does her thing, she will still face, Lord knows, racism. Just like I, as a dark-skinned black woman, still face racism on a daily basis. That doesn't go away. I don't think my life is traumatic. I think my life is beautiful. Um, you know, us black folk, we, we have learned for 400 years to live within the Du Boisian veil, to live and to work and to pray and to love in a country that does not love us back and has not, has been designed historically to enslave and to disenfranchise us. And yet I wake up every morning with a smile on my face and I pay my taxes, right? Like this is the world that black folk have always lived in. I just told it. (laughs) That's how I feel. So I'm not sure if it's, I don't think it's trauma. I think it's 
um, domestic terrorism, that's what racism is, it's always been designed to keep me and my peoples down. Um, I'm not sure why that is. I think folks historically are afraid of our glory and our greatness. Perhaps they should be. Um, but I don't feel as if my book is a trauma book. I okay. don't. All I right. feel as if my book tells an American story of an American family. And, uh, you know, we've always made this country great. But it would be so nice if this country recognized that. <laughs> but, you know, but what, what I got from Joan was that art played a significant role in her overcoming what you're talking about. Am I oh, correct? Oh, art plays a significant role in how I overcome it. Well, that's what you I was going to ask you. I is mean, it... if, I didn't have, if I didn't have my art, where would I be in this country? You know, I wrote this book because President, well, I don't even say President, because Donald Trump won the 2016 presidential election, and I literally thought that he would censor us black writers. I was a Black Lives Matter poet. Um, I write very political pieces of poetry around Chicago. I thought I'd be locked up, put in a cage, made to pick cotton for the rest of my life. Like, honestly, so I wrote this book in a hurry. Um, and, and even though nothing political is talked about in the book, this book very much is a political statement. Okay. Um, it's a statement that black lives are black lives matter so very much. All right. So yes, her art helped her overcome things, but right. you know, I, what, what else do we have? But well, the art, black folks, since we got here and changed. All right. Let me, let, let me pick up on right. the, on the political aspect you're talking about. There's a wonderful quote, disturbing in its accuracy. Uh, at the front of the book by Toni Morrison, okay, mm. that to me the characters in the book seem to personify about the fragile place uh, of black women in society. Let me just read the ending part of the quote because we, we want to make sure we stay on time. And it okay. is, quote, and she had nothing to fall back on, not maleness, not whiteness, not ladyhood, not anything. And out of the profound desolation of her reality, she may very well have invented herself, close quote. Mm -hmm. Am I, yeah, it is. Am I correct in my assumption that in writing this, your characters intentionally reflect this, that they're oh, yeah. creating I themselves? They, yes, they, they, yeah, they had nothing to fall, what did Miriam have to fall back on? When right. she uh, packed her children up in a van and fled across the country. Yeah. What did, what did, um, Hazel have to fall back on when the police show up at her door uh, when she's what four months pregnant. Mm -hmm. What you know? What what does Joan have to fall back on when she undergoes a, a violence that is almost right. indescribable at three years old? Like right. what? Did, yeah, they had to invent themselves, and that's the thing about black women: we can't. I don't know a stronger, more beautiful, more complex um, group of people. I, if, if God is building, God's still building them then. Because I, I, I don't know who else but us can do all of this and well, do it with so much flair. Okay. I really don't. I think black women are gifts from God. And even though this my novel told the story of my own family in Memphis. I think it is the story of countless black Southern families, you know, who have always done so much for this country. Well, I think look, good books, good writing have universal themes, and this clearly has that. But let me ask you this, just to close this loop on this, using the, the Morrison quote, if you will, where do you think black women stand today in reference to that quote? Still the same? 
Oh, Lord, I can't speak on behalf of all black women. I do know that we, whether this world chooses to recognize it or not, we run just about everything. Uh, all of all of entertainment is run by black women. Like, I don't I don't understand how people can go throughout their day and not just say thank you to a black woman they see on the street. You know, our everything we do has been copied for thousands of years, just the way we wear our hair, mm -hmm. right? Uh, I mean, uh, so I can't speak to the political climate of the black woman. I mean, there's so many of, there are millions of us across this diaspora, but I do know that we are, again, as I said, a great people, and whether this world recognizes it or not, I very much do. Okay. And I can tell you that until the day I die, I will always, always write stories for black women. Mm -hmm. Writers tell me often that when they create a good character, that the character actually helps write the story. In fact, I had a, a prominent author in here one day say to me, Mike, sometimes my characters say to me, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to say that. That's not consistent. Did you find when you created your characters of Joan and Hazel and Miriam, did you find that to be true with your characters, that they kind of, oh, once yes. you shape them, they help you? Oh, yes. Stella did what she wanted to on the page. I couldn't control that woman. If I wanted, I tried. I don't know. I said, oh, my God, I'm going to get sued, Della. You're going you gonna to get me stoned in America, Della. So, yeah, I felt that way. Uh, I feel that way about, yeah, certain characters, Joan especially. I was like, Joan, can we stop paying and talk to folks? Like, you got to lift your head up and say hello to people. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I would, I, would um, I, I feel as if I'm sitting here in my home in Memphis with all the characters, and we're all looking out on our porch, like, who are all these people? <laughs> Why are they so interested in us? That's what it feels like. It feels like I still live with them. They're still uh, around. Well, listen, th unfortunately, that's all the time for, we have for today. Aw, this is lovely. You've been listening to the Writers' Forum. I'm your host, Mike Tusa, and I've been really privileged to speak with Tara Stringfellow today about writing and about her new book, Memphis. Tara, is there? A, do you have a website that you can tell folks about that they can go to, read more about I'd yourself? And that? Folks, I would love if folks would follow me on Instagram. Okay. It's just my name, Tara Stringfellow, at Tara Stringfellow. And I also have a website. It's tarastringfellow.com. Sounds really great. Sounds, thank you so much, Tara, for speaking with me today. Aw, thank you for having me. This was delightful. A true pleasure. Thank you so much.